I'm so thankful to Sharon for lifting up the primary text that I am going to be preaching from this morning. But I want to read a little bit more if you don't mind. And I'll try to read it well so it won't bore you, okay? I will do my very best. But it comes from Amos chapter 5, and I think we need some real context. And I think if you lean in close, Amos chapter 5 is going to feel familiar to you, eerily, sadly familiar to you. Hear this word, Israel, this lament I take up concerning you are the words of the prophet Amos. Fallen is virgin Israel, never to rise again, deserted in her own land with no one to lift her up. This is what the sovereign Lord says to Israel. Your city that marches out a thousand strong will have only a hundred left. Your town that marches out a hundred strong will only have ten left. This is what the Lord says to Israel. Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba, for Gilgal will surely go into exile and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Seek the Lord and live. For he or he will sweep through the tribes of Joseph like a fire. It will devour them and Bethel will have no one to quench it. There are those who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. He who made the Pleiades and Orion, who turns midnight into dawn and darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land, the Lord is his name. With a blinding flash, he destroys the stronghold and brings the fortified city to ruin. There are those who hate the one who upholds justice in court and detest the one who tells the truth. You levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on their grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, the prudent keep quiet in such times, for the times are evil. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps, perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the Lord God Almighty says, there will be wailing in all the streets and cries of anguish in every public square. The farmers will be summoned to weep and the mourners to wail. There will be wailing in all the vineyards, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? The day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear, 
as though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall, only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark, without a ray of brightness? I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll down like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of your king, the pedestal of your idols, the star of your God, which you made yourselves. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is God Almighty. Sometimes you got to read a hard text and just let it sit. To be reminded of the thrice holy character of the living God. I hate, I hate, I hate. What strong words. I grew up in a household where we couldn't say hate. My mom got downright offended by that word. She said, don't you say that you hate anything. It's a strong word. I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs, the melody of your harps. I won't listen. But let justice, let justice, let justice, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So you can act out the prescriptions of the faith without your heart holding the transformative principles of the faith. Prescriptions about how a religious service ought to be, how it must be, this is the right way, its mood and its methods. Prescriptions about how we ought to give, burnt offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings. Prescriptions about worship, music, Content, skill, instrumentation, melody, and who gets to sing. After all, all of these things we see referenced in that Amos text. And they're all the people's acts of piety that they're giving to God. Their feasts, their assemblies, their offerings, their songs, their instrumentation, yet somehow they are not received as actual worship. Doing the motions, but not worshiping at all. Apart from justice and righteousness, according to the text, not according to me. These are simply antics of self-interest, performative faith, costumed Christianity. But why, why, why is this text so heavy hitting? Why is it stomping so hard? <laughs> In worship, we reflect the very heart of God back to God. Public assembly, private devotions, the way we live civically, our relationships, the ones people can see and the ones they don't see. 
The pillars of true worship is justice and righteousness, like the throne in which the triune God sits upon two sides of the same coin. We can sing along with the psalmist of old this morning. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. So justice, misfat, concrete actions to make things right. It's what you do, not what you say. Righteousness, syndica, relationships that are right and equitable across social status. This is a message we must never tire of hearing, that justice and righteousness go together. They necessarily hold hands. We must yearn for a balanced truth. You know, I have a fair amount of empathy for our messenger in this passage, for Amos. I imagine when Amos, the no-frills agricultural worker, said these words, he may have been met with an arrogant and entitled, who are you? I mean, where'd you come from? Especially from among the religious elite of the day. And my goodness, they sound familiar. I truly have empathy for those who are called to say a hard word to hard-hearted people, which is a hard thing to do. And I'm guessing self-righteous religious elites have not changed a whole lot from the time of Amos's words. Today, like then, we have a who are you attitude as to not hear what thus saith the Lord from the one whom God has called to say a hard thing to a hard people for their good. We paternalize the poor claiming to speak up when actually we're speaking over. We silence the daughters who prophesy like Philip's four, not really because of fidelity to scripture or some interpretation, but because it creates one more excuse, one less voice that we have to listen to that is telling a hard thing to a hard heart. But the truth don't need permission. It stands all by itself, no matter who is saying it. And neither do those who fear God over man that proclaim the risen Savior. In the resurrection, permission has already been given. So Amos was a prophet shaped by humility. Of himself, he wrote, I was no prophet nor a prophet's son. But I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock. And the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. He didn't come from a special line of prophets and priests. He was a tradesman who God called to a faraway land to give warnings about the results of disobedience. And disobedience always got results. He went from following the flock to leading it with cries for repentance. And the prophet Amos occupied the most humble position in society of that day. Only the poorest cultivated sycamore figs, for it was hard, hard 
labor. And just maybe, just maybe, because he knew about not quitting in the face of what is hard, in the face of what is despised, in the face of what is not valued, he could speak to those, he could speak those truths to those with hard hearts carrying a hard message to repent. Amos finds himself at this time during the reign of King Jeroboam II. It is a reign marked with military might. Oh, they've got power. And steep wealth, deep, deep pockets. Maybe they even brag about it a little bit. But oh, how seemingly good things like security and wealth can lull the people of God into a deep slumber of self-righteousness and apathy. Let me say that again. Oh, how a sense of security and comfort and wealth and power and guns can lull the people of God into self-righteousness and apathy. God is so good that they won't be good. The wealthy ignore in this time what is due to the poor, what is due to the poor. Debt slavery spreads throughout the land along with denial of legal representation. Did you hear it in that passage of Amos 5? Exploitation is the name of the game. And so while the people of God are surrounded by nations that receive God's rebuke as well, through Amos, it is Israel, the people who claim to be God's people, the people who God has claimed for himself, that get the greatest accusations, warnings, rebuke, and judgment. The people who claim to know him. Oh, when you say you represent the Lord, well, that's a heavy bur burden to bear. And the reason why their sin, just like ours, is so problematic, why it's so outrageous, why it's so shameful, is because God's people, of all people, ought to know a thing or two about slavery. They oughta. They oughta. Remember who you were, people of God. The remembrance is not a, to create a stagnating shame where we navel gaze and we're no good for anything. But we remember who we were and what God has done for us because it creates a life-giving humility. Certainly, those rescued from the evil clutches of slavery and exploitation would not create that same system for another. Certainly, people claiming to escape from religious suppression would not come to a stolen land and bring stolen people in God's name. Certainly, we would not become drunk with the wine of the world and forget thee. Spiritual amnesia. Don't you forget what the thrice holy God has done for you. Don't you forget it. Because when we have spiritual amnesia, we become something that just doesn't hurt ourselves. It hurts our community. Here we also see God, through the mouth of the prophet, chastise the people primarily for two things, worshiping false gods and mistreating the poor. And let me tell you, somebody is getting sacrificed whenever we worship false gods.
Sin has a long arm, and it does not clean up easily. And God sends this messenger, Amos, who knew a thing or two about the poor as a poor man to the people of God with a clear warning and rebuke, a rebuke from the poor about the poor. And during one of those rebukes and chastisement, it is declared, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. In context, God wanted his chosen people to obey him by ruling justly and behaving righteously, to stop living as hypocrites and idolaters and return to God. Yet the people of God then do what the people of God of myth do now. We use religiosity to not practice true religion. Let me say it again. We use religiosity to not practice true religion. And you might ask, well, what is true religion? As if it is esoteric, as if it's not in the text. James 1:27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. Isn't it lovely when the answers are right there? But will you accept it as true? To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself. Wait a minute, you don't mean my neighbor? No, to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Using religiosity to not practice true religion. And that comes with a sobering warning, one of the most terrifying texts in scripture for those who use religiosity not to practice true religion. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? In other words, didn't we do all the religious stuff? Weren't we good religious people? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Another translation, workers of iniquity. I know this is a heavy word, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. Psalm 36.4, they lie awake at night hatching sinful plots, the workers of iniquity. Their actions are never good. They make no attempt to turn from evil and will use religiosity to cover it up. They plot iniquity. They legislate iniquity. They vote iniquity into office. They pretend it doesn't exist and burn books that tell the truth about iniquity. They deny their own power and therefore avoid using their power to repair what is broken. Trying to get away with what God has told them to get, give up trying to get away with what God has told them to give up, creating bankrupt theologies to avoid repentance and to hold on to their bank. The religious people of Amos' time were trampling on the needy and the poor, keeping them low, and God sends a prophet out of love. God sends a prophet out of love. God sends out of love, even if you don't like the message. When God sends... It is out of love to warn his people messages of hope that proclaim Christ's justice and righteousness 
are from the throne of God. So here are four takeaways that I think may help you this week as you reflect on this time together. One, don't let people bait you into the justice versus social justice debate. People so sneaky. People advocating for their narrow view of justice that steps over or cancels out anyone that they believe undeserving of grace, justice, and mercy. All justice is social. The triune God's very being and identity is social. He created us in his image as social beings. We're not going to play semantic games, y'all. And when we hear these linguistic and semantic games, it's flat out trickery, dare I say witchcraft. It is what the workers of iniquity do to avoid repenting. Scripture speaks to practical, tangible, pointed acts and concerns about injustice. Stop debating about it. Do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Shake off that spiritual amnesia. You know who you are. But you must return to your God, maintain love and justice, and wait for your God always. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. This is the character of God. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Here's another cheat sheet. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Have you ever stood near a waterfall? I love visiting Niagara Falls, Canada side. I like, I like the American side too, but the Canada side, they, they let you live on the edge a little bit. <laughs> and I'm gonna tell you, you can't help but to get misted. You can't help but to feel the water coming down. And the justice that God calls us to is such a comprehensive, overflowing, powerful justice that even if you ain't close to it, you should still feel the implications of it. A justice that is saturating and constant, not a mist, but a flood. And that river is always rushing towards a larger body of water. In this way, correct judgment or justice in human matters should have been constant. It should be something that the people of God always should be striving to achieve, even while recognizing we need God's strength to do it. Justice isn't to be rationed out in the skimpiest way possible. Mm, sneaky, sneaky. We said we sorry. Why do you keep bringing that back up? Can't you just get over it? That was so long ago. Justice is to come down like a torrential rain pouring. God's justice saturates hard ground making it moist for planting. God's justice is restorative and thorough and transformative. As far as the curse is found is how far the grace of justice goes. Injustice and the spirit driving the workers of iniquity, because remember, we wrestle against principalities, but we win people. We wrestle against principalities, but we win people. And don't get it twisted, because we'll be fighting everybody. The workers of iniquity use the means of distraction, y'all. Distraction. To have you so worked up that you don't do the work of justice. 
Let me say it again and put it in your pocket. Distraction will have you so worked up that you don't do the work of justice. So don't take the bait. Save your breath. Hold your tweet. Keep your energy. Guard your witness, because it matters what you say, even to your enemy. This is not a game or a sport. Lives and souls are on the line, and God has given the assignment, trust and obey. Don't let people bait you. It's a distraction, y'all. And this topic of justice really, 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 really matters. And it matters because someone is suffering. And they have been told a lie about the character of God that he don't care about injustice. Oh, and it's a wicked thing to lie on the character of God. Our God does care. Our God does care about your particular suffering. Our God does care about your particular pain, the pain you have voiced and have not voiced. Our God does care about you. And any theology that tells you that our God does not care is from the pit of hell. God absolutely cares about your suffering. And you don't have to be a perfect victim for God to care about your suffering. And you don't have to be perfected in order to be due justice as an image bearer. Woe to abusers and enablers of such abuse who practice and propose these theologies that justify the unjustifiable. To those who have been harmed and oppressed, grace comes through justice to you. And like in the garden, the enemy's very first trick is echoed over and over again throughout time. Did God really say? Does God really care? Does God want you to know? God is holding out love to you, holiness, truth, and compassion today. God's very character gets put on trial when we deny that God cares about justice, and he expects us to care also. Secondly, but don't get it twisted. We love mercy. We love mercy. Sometimes I go to places where people need a pep talk about how they ought to do justice, and sometimes I go to places where people need a pep talk about how they need to love mercy. I don't know which one you are. But I feel like I'm gonna lean heavy right this way right now. Don't get it twisted. The people of God love mercy. It is mercy that has made us the people of God. We do justice with our hand, our money, our resources. We build it. But we love mercy. We rejoice with the angels at every sign of repentance, even of our enemies. We love mercy. We praise the God of the second, third, fourth, and fifth chance. And we delight when salvation comes that even sets our cold enemy's heart free. Don't you forget to love mercy. Don't forget to love mercy while you're reading and while you're learning stuff. <laughs> Don't forget to love mercy. God loves mercy. He has shown you, O oh mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. So easily intoxicated by self-righteousness, y'all. It's a drug. 
Watch out, people who love justice. Self-righteousness is a drug. It will seduce you. And that you'll forget that you need mercy. You'll forget that you need mercy calling out the injustice. Y'all, we give as much grace as we think that we personally need. You need grace. I don't have to know you very well to know that. I know you need grace. And Lord knows I need it. Justice talk that does not bear the humility of one who needs grace and mercy becomes hardened and arrogant. Hardened and arrogant. And who does that sound like? The workers of iniquity. You will become the thing that you hate unless you lean into this love of mercy and walk humbly with your God. Planks and sawdust, y'all. Planks and sawdust, y'all. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye, your sister's eye, your neighbor's eye, and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Maybe you're looking at the sawdust and not deal with the plank in your own eye. I don't know, I'm a psychologist. Sometimes we do that kind of thing. How can you say to your neighbor, to your sibling, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own? Scripture says you hypocrite. I didn't say that. Scripture says you hypocrite. First, first, there's an order to this. There's an order to this. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will be able to see more clearly. Then you will be able to see more clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. In other words, you'll be able to help somebody else when you care about being unpolluted by the world, when you take care of your own business. You might be able to get a hearing from somebody, not because of your perfection, but because of your humility and repentance. It might earn you a hearing from that person who's done with church. Tend to your planks so that by grace you can be of assistance removing the sawdust. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Let's not pit one of those things against the other. We need righteousness and we need justice. We need righteousness and we need justice. We need to fix the crooked ways and we need holiness because it's still right. We need the waterfalls of justice and the ever-flowing stream of righteousness, not a measly drop of it. And caution. Hear this caution to those who lean into one to avoid the other. Do you hear what I'm saying? Do you know what I'm saying? Leaning into one, leaning into justice talk, so we don't have to deal with that talk about being unpolluted by the world. Leaning into personal piety, so we don't have to talk about justice and making things right for our neighbor. Two hands. Justice and righteousness. Fourth, and finally, injustice exists because of idolatry. Idols of greed and power, they tempt us into trampling over others, namely the poor. And we disregard or victim blame the quartet of the vulnerable, the sojourner, the widow, women without social power, the orphan, children without protection, and the poor using what psychologists call strategic ignorance pretending like we don't know. 
and skipping entire sections of history and scripture and present day realities. Injustice is expressed socially. Our idolatry destroys how we see the true God, ourselves, and our neighbors. So today, 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 since I've already been confessing, name your idols. Call them out before they call you out. I know we can see everybody else's stuff. It's real easy to see. But they're not the ones that you'll be asked about before you stand, when you stand before the Lord. It'll be you who God asks about. So today is your day to ask the Spirit to search you because those idols come at a cost to you and your neighbor. There are no victimless crimes. There are no neat and tidy sins. All seek to kill and destroy. And for generations, people have co-opted Jesus' name for their causes. And if you take Jesus' name, you got to take Jesus' way. Love, mercy, do justice. Amos was sent to a people, just like the preachers today, who had turned away from the Lord's justice, instead being characterized as you who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Instead of being an oasis or an ocean in the desert where God's heart for justice and righteousness was mirrored through the lives of the people, Israel, like the church today, had become a sad trickle of justice, where injustice was commonplace and righteousness a cheap performance. The church today in the United States has lost significant trust by every metric, every social science metric we have, or just a conversation with somebody at Starbucks. And that loss of trust and respect is not due to a campaign of lies. It's not due to the liberal media's plots and ploys, <laughs> but by its own misdeeds. Misdeeds that reveal a collusion with corrupt politics, because let me tell you, we're so afraid of persecution that we will hook our wagon to injustice because we have not been taught how to stand in a society that says, I don't believe what you believe. We will sell people out to avoid even the slightest hint of persecution, hitching our wagon to Supreme Court justices. Whew. While our brothers and sisters in the true faith of the true religion shake in the darkness, sharing one page of scripture that know a thing or two about real persecution. Do not let comfort and privilege lull you into self-righteousness. So it's our misdeeds that reveal this collusion with corrupt politics, grotesque bigotry, my goodness. Woo, ain't nobody more racist than a Christian racist, y'all. And I'm saying that because I, I know the data. It's just true. There's really only one group in which Christianity makes them less racist. If you read the book, you'll find out. Silence in the midst of obvious injustice, lacking the fruits of discipline. Known too often, the church in America, 
for cover-ups and cruelty and not tangible compassion and self-righteousness. By the way, it doesn't mean that that's not there. There is compassion. There is love. There is acts of justice, but it ain't what we known for. And you have to deal with perception and reality. Both of those things matter. We see the insulating of church leaders from actual accountability, minimizing sexual harassment, rampant misogyny, and even taking God's name in vain to do it. So that's another level of sin. It's one thing to do wrong. It's a whole other thing to say God told me I could do it. The greater Amos, the greater Amos has come to the church in America by the power of the Spirit. You want to know who that is? The king, the prophet, the sacrifice in and of himself, the high priest, he has come. The one who knows what it means to face injustice and bear the weight of sins, your sin. Jesus, the greater Amos, comes with warning and divine hope. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. It is Christ, the living water, who is all these things that we need and I invite you to drink of this water. This is what God wants for us, justice and righteousness. But thanks to be to God that what God wants is what God also gives. Hear me. Thanks be to Christ that what God wants of you, that what God requires of you, God also gives to you. God gives to the church justice and righteousness. So, love mercy, do justice, walk humbly, be humble, for it is God working within and through us. Any bit of light, revelation, sense of justice that you have, it is by grace alone. Be humble, lest you develop spiritual amnesia and you start tripping. Be humble, lest you become lulled by comfort and cash and place your neighbors into debt slavery. Be humble and entrust yourself to the lowly, lowly servant, the one with all power, who is truly divine, who demonstrates his compassion and excellence through humility, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is at work making all things right. I know it's hard to see it. Look close, look close with spiritual eyes. He is at work making all things new and just in due time. Amen.